0: my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Reduce from our studios at Prasanthi Nilayam. In this program, as all of you are aware, we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse in as much detail as possible and try to study it in line with whatever Swami has said and more importantly, as practical as possible and uh, We've completed five chapters and as it is a tradition, we will go through a summary of the fifth chapter and uh, nothing can make the Gita more practical than a situation like what we are having in right now, right? We can speak endlessly about surrender, we can speak endlessly about not giving in to the idea that we are the body and mind, but there are very few rare opportunities where you can actually practice it, right? And when there is an emergency, when there are situations that are not really as sunny and uh, uplifting as as one we are going through right now, I think that's the best time for us to really look within and see how much of this has really got into us, or how much of this has become a part of our thinking and system, right? And uh, I think with that idea in our mind, let's go through the summary of the fifth chapter. the fifth chapter is referred to as Sanyasa Yoga as we have seen. I think uh, as I was going through there are many other names also which are given for this chapter some say it is Karma Sanyasa Yoga, some say this is the chapter which is on yana Yoga but I think most people agree that uh, the chapter's name is Sanyasa Yoga so we will go with that and as the name suggests Krishna is speaking about sannyasa or renunciation and we know for this much that Krishna does not speak of anything superficially and so when you say that Krishna is speaking about sannyasa, he is speaking about what is true sannyasa or what it is to be a true sannyasi. like the few earlier chapters the fifth chapter also begins with a doubt that Arjuna raises and what makes this very interesting is he asks a doubt just after Krishna has said that you must destroy all your doubts But this is not to say that Arjuna was doing something contrary to what Krishna was advising or he was doing something wrong. In fact, he was being a very good student. He was raising a very genuine doubt in the form of a Pariprasna. And who better to have them clarified from than from Krishna himself. And in fact, Krishna says in the previous chapter that all doubts must be destroyed with the sword of wisdom and Krishna is wisdom himself. So it is not... uh, Inappropriate that Arjuna is raising a doubt just after Krishna has said that. But the question itself also reveals Arjuna's hidden impulse, which kind of keeps resurfacing every now and then. The impulse to just run away and take sannyasa. In the fifth chapter, it also arises because of a few statements that Krishna had made in the previous chapter. Krishna, in his discourse in the previous chapter, kind of enormously praised Jnana and went on to say that eventually all karma has to be given up in the pursuit of this jnana or when this jnana is attained. Of course, the point is that Krishna had clearly said that through jnana, all karma has to be given up. That is, when one attains jnana, you will automatically give up the idea of doership and hence there will be no karma whatsoever. But it does give the idea that karma sannyasa or renunciation of karma is kind of inevitable on the path. So that has had Arjuna be a bit confused. The chapter so begins with Arjuna expressing this confusion of his. He says, you praise the renunciation of all actions and then you also speak very highly of karma. Tanme bruhi sunis chitam He says, tell me conclusively which one is better. Don't confuse me. Right? That's what Arjuna says. And as I said, clearly the doubt comes from Arjuna's innate desire to become a sannyasi, right? Because Arjuna has had this bias towards this decision and because he has it, he wants Krishna to explain clearly in a manner why he must not take that path as it is a course that gives jnana importance, right? When somebody takes to sannyasa, it is like somebody saying that I acknowledge that spirituality is very important in my life And when Krishna is saying that jnana is so important, to Arjuna's mind, taking to a path of sannyasa and pursuing that jnana one-pointedly seems to be the right thing to do. So you are telling me not to do, you need to convince me more convincingly. You need to put this doubt to rest in a more convincing manner. That's what Arjuna seems to be saying in the beginning of this chapter. So in the next few shlokas, Krishna clarifies this doubt that Arjuna has had. But before that, we had discussed the nature of Arjuna's confusion and why it appears that Arjuna had not understood what Krishna was actually saying. There are two types of sannyasas. vividisha sannyasa and Vidvat sannyasa. We had discussed this during the course of the beginning of the fifth chapter itself. Vividisha sannyasa is the renunciation of the seeker as a means to attain knowledge as we just saw. The spiritual path I want, this is the goal that I want to reach. So let me dedicate all my time and energy only to that. So a seeker takes to the path of sannyasa and that is referred to as vividisha sannyasa. Vidvat sanyasa, on the other hand, is the renunciation of the self-knower or of the jnani. Vividisha sannyasa is the sannyasa of the sadhaka. Vidvat sannyasa is the sannyasa of a jnani. So, Krishna, when he spoke of sannyasa being inevitable, he was actually referring to the sannyasa that happens automatically and spontaneously when one becomes jnani And when Arjuna is asking, why should I not go away and take up sannyasa? He is asking about Vividisha Sanyasa or renunciation as a means to that knowledge. Coming to Krishna's answer, Krishna says, Both the path of renunciation and the path of karma yoga lead one to liberation. There is no doubt about that. Because what the sadhaka is pursuing in both cases is the same jnana. But Krishna categorically says, between the two, karma yoga is certainly better. When Arjuna posed that question, he words it by saying, Yatushireya, which is better? But the word Shreya also means that which leads to the ultimate goal. So when Krishna answers, he says, Nishreya Sakara Ubhav. So when he answers, he is answering, taking the meaning of that question as Shreya meaning the ultimate. So he says, both of them lead to the ultimate. Right? That is why he says, Nishreya Sakara Ubhav. And in fact, if you look at it, which is one of the critical points because if one of the paths was not going to lead to the goal at all, then the discussion ends then and there. But both paths are valid. But Krishna is addressing the other meaning of the question, Yathashreya, which is better. In reply to that, he says, Karma Yoga is better. Then Krishna makes a very important point. He says, A true sannyasi is one who has transcended the dualities of life, of likes and hatreds. All through the previous chapter, especially previous chapters, especially the third chapter, if you particularly look at that, where Krishna spoke of karma yoga, he explains how raga and dvesha is the fundamental flaw in the mind and karma yoga is one of the best means to tackle it. So when Arjuna is asking about taking sannyasa. Clearly, it is his raga and dvesha of that moment that is making him want to choose sannyasa over doing his duty. He has come to a point where he doesn't like the idea of performing the duty which is right in front of him. That being the case, how can that be true sannyasa which is taken under the influence of one's likes and dislikes? So that is the subtle hint that Krishna is giving at this point. If you were to generalise this, sannyasa as a path is certainly not wrong because Krishna himself has said that both are equally valid. But taking to that path driven by the troubles in the world or losses in business or say fight with one's wife or husband or because children are not obeying them, such a decision taken under such compulsion may probably not be the right idea. Instead, To do karma as yoga may be more effective because that is, as I just mentioned, one of the better ways to deal with raga and visha in the mind. So when Krishna says they are equally good but one is better than the other, it may sound paradoxical. But the point is, both are valid but probably for Arjuna, karma yoga may be better. And in general, for most of us who probably do not have that deep calling from within. Some of us might have that, but most of us don't. And who only have, you could say, flashes of vairagya born out of virakti or disenchantment, then karma yoga seems to be a much better path to take. I think that is the point Krishna makes very very clearly as soon as he begins that answer. In the next few verses, that is 4, 5, 6 and 7, Krishna relates how they are the same, and how yet Karma Yoga is a better choice. He goes on to say the ignorant will only proclaim the two paths to be different. Whoever takes to any of the two paths sincerely will certainly obtain the rewards meant for both paths, which means one may become a Karma Yogi, but if one is sincere on that path, he also attains what a sannyasi attains, or one may be a sannyasi. But if one is sincere on that path, one again attains the rewards of that path as well as the path of karma yoga. Right? That's what he says, whoever takes to any of the two paths sincerely will obtain the rewards meant for both paths. This is a reiteration of what Krishna had said even in the third chapter. Right? That these are two paths and being steadfast in either will take you to the goal. Right? In the next one, Krishna repeats this by saying, what a sannyasi reaches, the same even a karma yogi reaches. And only he truly sees who sees the two parts as not being different. Right? That's what Krishna says in the fifth verse. So this is a clear statement from Krishna that even sannyasa is not to be looked down upon. Some of the commentators tend to do that as a mistake, right? As an overcorrection. Saying that here Krishna is praising only Karma Yoga, they say Sannyasa is a is a strictly forbidden path. Clearly, that is not the case because Krishna is saying both are equally holy, right? So Sannyasa is not to be looked down upon. It is as much a sacred pathway. Just because Krishna is discouraging Arjuna from that path, Krishna is making it very clear that it is not wrong in any way. But just Karma Yoga is easier given the mental makeup of Arjuna. And as an extension for the mental makeup of most of us in that sense. Yata prapyate That which is reached by the Sankhya's tata Api Gamyate That even the Karma Yogis reach in time. The usage of the words Prapyate and Gamyate is very interesting as we had seen. Prapyate means achieved, Gamyate means reached. So it may appear that a Sankhya or a Sanyasiya has one-pointedly been pursuing Jnana while the Karma Yogi is doing duty without probably as much thinking about Jnana all the time. But even then, the same state is attained in the course of the journey when it comes to a Karma Yogi. So a Sankhya pursues and achieves it, the Karma Yogi, in course of what they are doing, eventually stumble upon it, so to say. They eventually achieve it, gamyate Krishna explains that by saying that the sage who is a master of karma yoga, for him, the goal is not very far away. But Krishna impresses the importance of karma yoga by saying that even for the attitude of sannyasa, even for the attitude of renunciation, the groundwork of karma yoga becomes very essential. People who tend to propagate sannyasa say, so karma yoga leads to sannyasa according to the Gita, and hence, Sannyasa is advanced and karma yoga is something like a lower class or a lower standard. On the other hand, those who want to propagate karma yoga say that look this is fundamental and Sannyasa is nothing without this. So karma yoga is better. But the fact is they are inseparable. I think that is the point Krishna is trying to put forth here. A wise one sees them as inseparable. But uh, another way of probably looking at it is you know, we are Jivatmas which have been traveling from many lifetimes in different bodies. So, who knows, we might be taking to these paths in different lifetimes. We might have been a sannyasi at point, we might become a karma yogi later, we may again become a sannyasi. And in the course of this journey towards jnana, whatever is required, whatever is required at that point in time, probably we might be going through that experience, right? So, the idea is that one sees them as inseparable. In the seven shloka, Krishna uses a few adjectives for the karma yogi which can very beautifully be seen as the various stages one has to accomplish in this journey. He first says, A yoga yukta, one dedicated to the path of yoga, becomes a Vishuddhātma. First of all, you will become a pure person. So, first and foremost, I must become a good person who doesn't want to harm others, who doesn't wish for bad things to happen to others, who tries to stick to the path of morality even if others don't. Whatever Swami would say as being a good person, being a good human being, be good, see good, do good as Swami would put it. A person who is pure in thought, word and deed, a Vishuddhaatma is probably the first stage that a karma yogi must look to reach. Then Krishna says, we may have very good thoughts and intentions, but for us to act upon them, we must have a certain control over ourselves. Right? I may want to speak very lovingly, but if I have no control over my temper, there is no guarantee that I will not yell and throw something at you. Right? So one needs to have mastery over oneself and that is what Krishna says, a true karma yogi is he is not only a Vishuddhātma a pure one he is a Vijitātma Jitendriya one who has mastery over one's body and the senses the next adjective which can be seen as the next stage one reaches is very beautifully worded he says Sarvabhūtātma Bhūtātma it means one whose self has now become the self in all beings It's very poetically worded but what it says is one who has come to a state of understanding that one's own self and the self in everyone else is one and the same. Right? It was never different. It was always the same. So when Krishna says Sarva Bhutatma Bhutatma it does not mean that one's self now becomes the self in everyone. That is the truth. The jnani comes to understand this. That's why it is very beautifully worded. In the next two shlokas, shloka number eight and nine, Krishna makes a mention of all kinds of actions, almost giving a very exhaustive list. He says seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, speaking, seizing, letting go, opening, closing, etc., etc. Two shlokas which are very beautifully worded with alliterations. In performing all these actions, the jnani, constantly remains established in the idea that none of this is performed by the individual. Na eva kinchit karomi. I do not do any of this. That is the attitude that a has. And he or she is convinced with the idea that the senses do their task of working with the sense objects. I have nothing to do with it. Krishna refers to such a person as a tattvavit, a knower of the tattva, the essential truth. After having described the tattvavit in this manner, Krishna quickly adds in the next loka that not only a tattvavit but even that sadhaka who performs all actions as an offering to God with detachment, even he or she is not touched by sin. Padma patram ambasa. Like the lotus is not touched by water. That is how Krishna describes this sadhaka who performs all actions as an offering to the Lord. The important point that Krishna makes here is if one is truly acting as all actions are offering to God, then detachment will automatically come into the picture. Yaha. Brahman Nyadhaya Karmani, one who offers all actions to Brahman, Sangam tyaktwa Karoti will act without any attachment. Because an offering to God is always personal. When I am making a prayer, when I am doing a puja, when I am doing an archana, when I am involving myself in worship, others don't play a role in it, right? I might be sitting in a community and doing a community prayer. I might be sitting with everybody else and doing bhajans. But puja, essentially, prayer or worship or any form of offering to God is always a very personal and one-to-one connection between the devotee and the Lord. Right. So there is no question of seeking the approval of, of others, rewards that come in the form of appreciation. There is no question of all of these coming into the picture. None of these will be looked forward to. And you will tend to focus more on the act which is being done as an offering itself and not on the outcome of the act. And that is why the attitude of offering all actions automatically leads to a certain amount of detachment towards the results of the action and towards what people would say towards how others will perceive it. This attitude of offering our actions to God is referred to as Ishwara Arpana Buddhi. Right? That attitude is referred to as Ishwara Arpana Buddhi. And this attitude goes hand in hand with the attitude of accepting everything as Prasadam or God's blessings. And this is called Prasadabuddhi. Now, because even when actions are performed with the attitude or offering, it will have consequences, right? Just because it is being done as an offering does not mean there will not be consequences. The consequences sometimes will be pleasant, sometimes it will be not pleasant, not accepted or not expected. The karma yogi accepts both as prasadam and that is the secret behind his or her equanimity and non-attachment to the fruits, right? When all results are equally acceptable, there is no attachment to one or hatred towards the other. That is raga or dvesha. So that prasad buddhi is as much central to karma yoga as Ishwara arpana buddhi is. Now when I perform my actions itself, I will have a certain amount of acceptance of any results for the actions that I am performing. Right? And tomorrow, when I receive the results of the actions that I have performed today, I will have a certain dispassion towards them, and this leads to another very important attitude. If tomorrow is the results of my actions of today, then what I am today, my present circumstances, they must be a result of my actions of yesterday, isn't it? And since I have this prasada buddhi, I accept. Even my present condition, even my present place I am, the people I am living with, the family I am born in, all of this as prasada of God and I will accept it as God's will. So when I am playing my role as a son or a daughter or a mother, father, brother or a sister, I will consider myself as being assigned a role by God and I will carry it out with that attitude. So these three attitudes the Ishvara Arpana Buddhi, the Prasada Buddhi and acceptance of the role that we are playing as an instrument of the God are in that way interconnected, so to say. So just like how the various organs in the body literally carry out their respective assigned duties, right? There is a kidney, there is a stomach, there are intestines. All of these perform their assigned duties. The eye doesn't ask, why am I not given the food? And why is it that the mouth is only fed all the time? The mouth doesn't ask, why should I alone do all the chewing when all the organs benefit from it? Right. Each one performs the assigned task. And that is precisely the idea Krishna conveys about how a karma yogi will go about his or her duty. So the yogi performs the actions but performs them with these organs. kayena by the body, Manasa with the mind, Buddha by the intellect indriyaihi api and the senses too without an ego sense without the feeling of doership just like how i said the eye performs its task the mouth performs its task the each organ in the body performs their task my mind intellect my body and senses perform their given tasks and there is no ego sense attached to any of them i do not say i am doing this for a jnani, it is very simple to act in this manner without any attachment and incentive. But when it comes to a karma yogi, when it comes to a sadhaka, one might still need a goal to work towards, right? And Krishna acknowledges that. And when he says, Yoginaha karma kurvanti atma he is acknowledging that very fact that even a karma yogi needs something to work towards. So the yogi performs actions. For the purpose of self purification. Where here the word Atma, of course, is not used in the sense of the higher self because the higher self, the Atman, does not need any purification. Here it means Atma Shuddhaya means for the purification of oneself, purification of the body mind complex. In the 12th verse, Krishna does something that we have often seen him do. He shows both sides of the coin. He says, the karma yogi through these steps who acts without detachment eventually reaches the supreme peace that is reserved for the one with atmanishta whereas the worldly person only gets further bound in one's own actions. This is also a hint as to what are the milestones that we must look forward to when we take to the path of karma yoga. A spiritual person will see if one is becoming more peaceful in nature, right? This is a very practical and important point that Krishna is saying here and there are going to be a few more milestones that we can look forward to in the path which Krishna mentions later in the chapter. But the one which he is mentioning here is we will be moving towards that state of higher peace, right? In the 13th verse, Krishna sort of addresses the core confusion in Arjuna when he says Karmani manasa sanyasya aste sukham vashi meaning the self controlled vashi means the self controlled renounces all actions mentally and not necessarily literally right and having done that he resides in the body like a king who resides in a city of nine entrances navadvare puredehi he considers himself as a Dehi, merely an indweller, not the Deha itself. And pure Dehi, he considers himself as the Dehi who lives in this city of nine entrances. But the most important description of the nyani in that shloka is Naivakurvan karvyan Not acting, not even causing to act. That is what he says. When it is said that the self does not act or make another act, the reference is to the karma which is driven by a desire, a need or a feeling or incompleteness. All normal karmas are driven by such incompleteness, right? A necessity to attain something or achieve something. But in the case of a jnani, the jnani is in a state where he or she has completely removed themselves from the scheme of such things. Nothing is done, but everything is accomplished. So one is like a king in a city. He does not act. He does not even have to command people to act. His mere presence is making everybody do what has to be done. Right? So that is the picture that Krishna gives of a jnani. He, he does not act, nor does he make others act. The 14th verse is an interesting one where Krishna draws a very beautiful parallel between this Dehi and the Lord of the Universe. He doesn't say, I am comparing the two, but the way it is worded, the distinction between the Dehi, the Master in the body, and the Lord, the Master of the Universe, is kind of complete, kind of blurred to give that idea of comparison. The Lord is imminent in the world. Nothing can happen without Him, but yet the Lord is not the doer nor does he make us to choose what we are doing also he does not ensure an action gets an appropriate reaction right this is something i think we had spoken even about in the second chapter and this is supposed to be appearing again in the later chapters right so this is the description of the lord everything happens because of the lord but the lord does not necessarily choose a particular action nor does he say that for this action this will be the reward so krishna says that Then, what makes things happen? What makes one react? What makes one act? When you say that the Lord is imminent in the world, in the same manner, the Dehi is imminent in the Deha, and He also does not act or make a choice, does not make any reaction come to a particular act. So, Krishna says that the nature or Prakriti is the one which makes all these actions happen. So, when we look at this world, that nature or Prakriti is maya or delusory. Similarly, in each one of us there is a Dehi whose nature is wisdom and the body-mind complex whose nature is maya. So what makes us the doer is this association with the body-mind complex. This idea that I am this body-mind or rather I am so-and-so, I am Prem, I am so and so. son, I am working in such-and-such a place. So this association with the body-mind complex. This ahankara is what makes us deluded. That is why in the next Shloka, Krishna says the jnana, when it is covered by ajnana, one becomes the doer of actions. That ajnana is this ahankara or association with our personality. So this ahankara is itself a product of this delusion and this false identification has to be given up. That is what is the spiritual journey all about. But merely having this data that I am not this body, I am not this mind, is not going to help us. There is a mechanism by which this has to be given up. I need to gradually get rid of this delusion and for that, one starts with the idea that I am this body and goes through the process that we spoke of. Vishuddha Atma, self-purification. Vijita Atma, jitendriya. Mastery over the body-mind and senses and sarva-bhutatma-bhutatma eventually where one sees that the self is one and the same in all beings. This portion of two or three shlokas is believed to be essentially the concept of the Sankhya school of philosophy, one of the six schools of Vedanta. According to the Sankhya philosophy, there are two realities. There is Purusha and there is Prakriti or nature. There is no concept of one merging into the other or evolving into the other, like in the other schools of Vedanta. So according to this philosophy, the Purusha is pure, and from the Purusha, Prakriti has emerged, and Prakriti is the nature or creation of the world that we see, which is also referred to as Maya or the delusion aspect of God. So when this Purusha and Prakriti interact, Buddhi, the intellect, and Ahankara, the ego, are born. And this further leads to the multitude of feelings and emotions such as greed, compassion, jealousy and all of these to be born. Right? This is the basis of the Sankhya philosophy. And when the balance of this combination is tilted towards the original state using the Buddhi as the tool, slowly the ego starts dissolving and the Purusha state is attained where one associates oneself more with the Purusha than with the Prakriti. Something very similar to that is being described in these verses of the 5th chapter. That is why many of the commentators say that this portion of the Gita is presenting the Sankhya philosophy. And again, to clear, Sankhya philosophy is different from Sankhya Yoga that Krishna is speaking about here. Sankhya Yoga is almost suggesting like a path of sannyasa. Sankhya philosophy is completely different as I just explained to you. In the... 16th shloka of this chapter, Krishna says, In the case of those whose ajnana has been destroyed by jnana, then for them that knowledge illumines itself like the sun. In the previous verse, Krishna had said that the ajnana covers jnana and hence one thinks that one is the doer. But here, Krishna says, In the case of those whose ajnana has been destroyed by jnana, then for them that knowledge illumines itself. Like the sun, the sun reveals itself through its illumination. The comparison here is very important, right? Just a while ago, Krishna said that the self, whose nature is jnana, does not do anything, right? It is almost like it is a very passive witness. It remains covered by ajnana and it does not do anything about it, right? But here, Krishna speaks of jnana, proactively destroying ajnana, or one person using jnana to destroy ajnana. The difference is. Here Krishna is speaking about the knowledge in the mind and not the nature of the self. In other words, there is Purusha and Prakriti. The nature of Purusha is Jnana. Nature of Prakriti is agnana. Under the influence of Prakriti, there is agnana in the mind. There is a delusion in the mind that I am this body-mind. But there is also Buddhi. Which can be spoken of as a representative of the Atma in the mind, right? That's what Swami has told in many of his discourses. So, using the Buddhi, if the ajnana in the mind is removed with self knowledge, then, like the clouds parting, makes the sun reveal itself, the self is revealed. So, Krishna refers to that supreme self as tatparam in the shloka, and he says that tatparam will be revealed. So, that is the difference here. In the previous shloka, Krishna speaks about. The nature of the self, which is jnana, is covered by the nature of prakriti, which is ajnana. But in this shloka, he is speaking about what happens in the mind itself. There is ajnana and jnana in the mind, and the sadhaka is actively using buddhi to destroy that ajnana with the help of jnana in the form of what is said in the scriptures, what is said by the guru. Right? Taking off from the previous shloka where Krishna says, Uses the word Tatparam, right? That supreme, literally that supreme. Tatparam literally means that supreme. So, taking from there, in the seventeenth shloka, Krishna does a beautiful wordplay with that word Tat. But it is not merely a wordplay. That is, there is a very beautiful message in that wordplay. He says, Tat Buddhayaha, whose buddhi is turned to the Tat, or Awakened to that tat. What is the meaning of this phrase, awakened or turned towards that tat? The buddhi or intellect is what we use to make decisions in our everyday life, right? To discriminate between good and bad, right and wrong. And that decision must be based on something. When I'm eating some food, when I say that this food is good, this food is bad, it is based on the idea that eating what will keep this body healthy. Right. If I think I am the body, what is good and bad will be completely fixed only to this idea that I am this body. Right. If I think I am in reality the higher self, then I am trying to reach there. The way I will discriminate in my day-to-day life will completely change. So Krishna is defining a karma yogi as someone whose buddhi is now awakened to that tat. And if awakened, what will be the response is mentioned in the following words. He says, I will think I am that, which will transform my discrimination. Tat I will look upon that as my ultimate goal and that will transform my discrimination in a certain manner. Tan and eventually one becomes a person who is firmly established in that Tata. At which point the karma yogi now becomes a jnani and the sadhaka attains the goal. And a person who is a Tat buddhayaha, tadatmanaha, tadparayanaha then reaches that state from where there is no return. Gachanti Apunaravittam. He reaches a state from where there is no return, which is once you attain it. You do not have to attain anything else, you do not come back, right? And how is that? Krishna says, Jnana Nirdhuta Kalmasaha, because all their flaws, Kalmasaha, or impurities, have been completely destroyed by this Jnana. In the 18th and 19th shloka, Krishna speaks of a very obvious trait of such a person. He says, The learned one looks with equanimity on a Brahmana endowed with learning and humility. right? He says, Vidya Vinaya Sampanne Brahmane That is, a learned Brahmana who is endowed with learning and humility, a cow, Gavi, an elephant, Hastine, and even a dog as well as an eater of dog's flesh. Shuni Chaiva Shwapakecha. So he says, in a very popular phrase, which will I think repeat again in the Gita, Panditaha Samadarshinaha The truly learned one has an equal vision. And how is this so? We spoke of how this jnana is very different from the many knowledge that we acquire in our everyday life. Right When we learn an art, when we acquire a degree, when we progress in our learning, this jnana is a little different from that sense. Because when a jnani attains this jnana, he stops seeing himself or herself as the body and mind. And when they reach that state and start seeing themselves as being beyond body and mind, they also stop seeing others as the body and the mind, right? So learning refined qualities, caste, habits, good or evil nature are all only attributes that can be spoken of as those of the body and the mind. And because the learned ones sees beyond the body and the mind, not for a moment the learned one sees one as being higher or lower than the other. So Krishna states, the person who has this equal perception attains victory over birth and death in this world itself. But again, clearly Krishna states that it is a mental attitude. Yesham Those for whom there is equality in the mind. Right, It's again a very important assertion that Krishna is making here because sometimes equality in action is not possible or is not appropriate too. And one of the classic examples that Swami would often give is different people who come to you might all be embodiments of the same divinity but they have to be treated appropriately. A wife has to be treated differently. A mother has to be treated differently. A son has to be treated differently. A father has to be treated differently. Right, Even though they are all equally embodiments of the same divinity. So that is why Krishna very clearly says Yeshaam samye that equanimity or equality is established in the mind, not necessarily always in action. The 20th verse was another verse where it appears to be a description of a jnani, but truly it is a way in which Krishna is explaining the state to a sadhaka in a manner that it would be useful to a sadhaka. Krishna describes the jnani as someone who isn't delighted when he gets something that is priyam or likable or gets dejected because something apriyam or dislikable has happened to that person. And what causes this trait? Because he should be a sthira one who is of a steady intellect, asam moodha, undeluded, Brahavit, knower of Brahman, and Brahmani Stitaha, established in that Brahman. Right? So the reason why this is very beautiful for a sadhaka is sthirabuddhi. How often can you make your discrimination be steadily placed on this idea that you're not this body in the mind? Right? And this is something that we can work on. Right now, our mind is not necessarily sthirabuddhi in the sense that it is perfectly stable but at least as many decisions as possible if we are able to make it from this point of view. And similarly, Modaha, The more the mind, the buddhi is stable, the more it will not be deluded. Brahmavit. And eventually this knowledge of brahman is going to predominate all the decisions that we make in life. The way we react to situations, the way we make choices in life, the way we lead our life, everything is going to be tempered by this Brahmavit or the knowledge of Brahman, and eventually Brahmanistataha, one gets established in that Brahman. That is why, though Krishna is describing Anyani here, it is a very beautiful description which is very useful to a sadhaka. And uh, this shloka is, in fact, it is in a tone that one should be like this, right? And there's no reason for Krishna to mandate Anyani because Anyani is already in this manner. Because a jnani, when you say he is beyond raga and dvesha, there is no question of something being priyam and something being apriyam. Right? So there is no liking and disliking for a jnani. But a sadhaka is still in that state where one has likes and dislikes and one has to be a little more detached to what one likes and a little more less fearful or apprehensive of what one dislikes. In the 21st verse, Krishna describes the jnani as a bahis parsheshu asaktatma, one who is indifferent to the contact with the outside world. Bahis parsheshu literally means touch from the external or the outside world. But we have discussed how all sensual interactions are in fact a form of touch. When I am listening, the sound waves touch my tympanic membrane in the ear and so I am able to listen. Sight is when light waves touch the photoreceptive cells in the eyes. So all sense organs can be described as different forms of sparsha. And a nyani, Krishna says, is indifferent to this interaction of the senses with the sense objects outside. But it doesn't mean that this person is like, almost like a zombie who does not seek happiness or is probably like a depressed soul. We all are seekers of happiness and that is what eventually leads us to the spiritual journey itself. The only difference is the Jnani has found this joy within. Vindati Atmani Yatsukam. He derives from one's inner self that happiness that you and I are seeking outside, right? Vindati Atmani Yatsukam. He looks for that happiness and he has found that happiness within. And Krishna concludes the shloka by saying, such a person finds the inexhaustible reservoir of happiness. Sukham Akshayam Ashnute So we can describe this entire spiritual journey itself as a quest for happiness where we all are moving from happiness derived from these bahya sparshas contact with the world outside to this happiness that is within oneself and eventually we discover Sukham Akshayam, this inexhaustible source of happiness that lies within. So a jnani can be described as someone who draws all his happiness only from this inexhaustible source within and is least bothered about bahya Spasha. A karma yogi can be described as one who is slowly tending towards drawing more happiness from within than from outside. And this detachment from the external stimuli drops off as soon as one experiences this joy within. But till then, how does one develop detachment to them? That Krishna mentions in the next shloka. He says, Understand that these sensual pleasures are merely sources of misery in reality. dukkha Because they are Because they are limited, they have a beginning and they have an end. Because the pleasure begins and ends, because the pleasure is so dependent on the external object, it only makes us dependent on the external object. It makes us addicted to those objects. And addiction means to be dependent and to be bound to something. And that is definitely not a state of true happiness. So these pleasures make us restless and lose peace when we strive for it, makes us sad when they are taken away from us, and probably for a very brief period we enjoy those pleasures. That is why they are in reality not sources of sukha. They are not sukhayonaya. They are sources of dukkha, yonaya. And the truly wise are those who know this and are not attracted to them. Na teshu Ramate Buddha. The Buddha, the learned one, the knowledgeable one, do not get attracted to these because they have understood them to be dukkha yoneha, souls of misery and nothing more. In the next verse, that is the 23rd verse, Krishna makes this process more accessible to us, more easily practicable, so to say. Because he speaks of something that can and must be done when we are still alive or still functioning within this world. Something that is more real than speaking of some heavens that we will reach after our death. That's why he says, Prakshir vimokshanat. Before one gives up this body, before one is released from this body, and what is it that he asks us to do? He says, to withstand the force that is born out of kama krodha. Kama krodod bhavam vegam. He says one must be able to resist this force that is born out of kama krodha. We discussed what is this Kama Krodha and the force born of Kama Krodha that Krishna is referring to. These are specially those desires that disturb us within and literally push us or propel us to act. And Kama and Krodha themselves are words that have different connotations. Kama is used for lust, Krodha for anger. But I think the usage here is in a much broader sense. Kama is any desire and krodha is any form of agitation that is caused when these desires are entertained. And kama krodod bhavam Vegam is that compulsive force that makes us to act on these desires. So Krishna says, start by controlling this. And we saw how controlling does not mean suppressing them but filtering it through the buddhi. Right. So ensure that the force doesn't make you do something that is immoral or adharmic. Always that is the first step. Krishna ends by saying, Sir Yuktaha Sir Nara, That man is a yogi and he will remain happy. Meaning that this happiness is worldly happiness too. Only a person who is able to control this force can truly be happy in life too. Verse number 24 has another very interesting play of words like one where we saw tatha repeating. Here it is the play of words with the word Antaha or within. Krishna states, The one who is an Antasukaha, whose happiness is within, Antara Ramaha, one who revels in that which is within, and Antarjyotihi, illumined with what's within alone. Such a yogi attains Brahma Nirvana. And we looked at the various meanings of these words and how they can apply to us in this journey. Antasukha means one slowly turns within for happiness, right? We all know this for a fact that without internal happiness, objects that give us happiness from outside will not give us happiness. We've seen that. If we are mentally disturbed, the most comfortable of beds cannot give us a good sleep. If we are mentally low or mentally depressed, The most tastiest of foods do not give us happiness, right? So even with general maturity, we understand that Antasukaha is something that we need to pursue. Antasukaha is something that we have to turn to, right? So Krishna says that one who is an Antasukaha, Antara Ramaha, one who revels in that which is within. And we spoke of two or three meanings for this. One of which is, one does not fear being alone with oneself. One does not fear loneliness one kind of enjoys that solitude because when what is inside starts to give you joy, what is inside becomes interesting to you, then you do not fear solitude. You do not want to run away from yourself. right? Antara Ramaha is that. The other way of looking at that particular statement is when you begin to realize that it's the same self that is extending around and the different people whom we interact with are in fact the same self, we will look at all of them as almost like you stand in front of a mirror, right? When we, Almost all of us get amused when we stand in front of a mirror. A life-size mirror is often spoken of as the best distraction you could have. In that sense, you will look at this entire world as a play of your own self, right? You'll be amused by that. Antara Ramah means you go through life literally being amused with your own self, which is playing about in the forms, different forms in different people who you interact with in your life. And Antar hi, you more and more depend on the inner illumination than the outer illumination, which means you depend on the words of the conscience, the direction that the conscience gives, than the words of those people around or the approval of those people around. Right? And Krishna says, when one eventually follows these, and as we have seen before, in the case of a Jnani, these are all in the perfect sense. Antasukah means one who seeks. Happiness only from within. In the case of a karma yogi, this is a literally a work in progress. One is getting there, right? So one who has these three qualities, he says, attains Brahma Nirvana. And in this shloka and the next one, Krishna uses this word Brahma Nirvanam to describe the state that the jnani reaches. And we had seen how the word nirvana actually means is to extinguish something or to blow out something. So nirvana can be used in different contexts. It can be used to relieve one of pain, relieve oneself of problems or help a person to get out of their problems. But here the reference is not to merely nirvana but brahma nirvana which means that act of extinguishing that leaves one in a state of brahman. And uh, in the 25th verse Krishna gives a few more interesting descriptions of a nyani. He says he is a Kshinakalmashaha. The flaws of Kama and Kroda, the force born out of the Kama and Kroda, Raga and Dvesha have been completely destroyed. Chidda Dvaida, even the basic delusion of duality, has been torn apart. Literally, Chinna means it has been torn. And then he says, Yatatmanaha, someone who is in perfect control of oneself. And finally, Sarvabhuta one who finds Delight in the welfare of all. And Krishna describes the Jnani in one statement as. Rataha. In one end of the statement, he says the duality is completely destroyed, but still he wishes for the welfare of all. And this is a very, very important statement that Krishna is making that he or she has not become insensitive to the pain of others. That's a very important point because. As we progress in this path, we will develop maturity that will help us look beyond physical pain and physical loss. But not necessarily everyone is in that same state. So a truly wise person will acknowledge that to be sympathetic towards all and to be giving everybody their time and space to progress and grow to that state that oneself is in is also a quality of jnani, bhute hithi rataha welfare for all beings in whatever state of mental progress they all are in. right? So that was the uh, 25th verse. I have not had time to go through the verses that we covered last week. Probably we will end the summary here and next week, before beginning the next chapter, that is the chapter number 6, I will complete the summary of the four shlokas. And I think that will also be appropriate for the reason, because chapter 6 is going to take off from those four shlokas. Those three or four shlokas in the end are literally from where Krishna takes on the 6th chapter. So we will do the summary of those verses next week, even before we begin with the 6th chapter. So dear listeners, with that we will conclude this week's episode, the summary of the 5th chapter. I hope it was not too much to take. Yes, a lot of content there, but I hope it was uh, useful in some way, as a way of refreshing what we had gone through. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's lotus feet. Do join me again for the next episode next week. Till I meet you all next week. Take care, Jay Saira.